Book Five, Sections Eleven through Twelve of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Politics by Aristotle, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Five, Sections Eleven through Twelve. Eleven. And they are preserved, to speak generally, by the opposite causes. Or, if we consider them separately, one, royalty is preserved by the limitation of its powers. The more restricted the functions of kings, the longer their power will last unimpaired. For then they are more moderate and not so despotic in their ways, and they are less envied by their subjects. This is the reason why the kingly office has lasted so long among the Molossians and for a similar reason it is continued among the Lacedaemonians, because there it was always divided between two, and afterwards further limited by Theopompus, in various respects, more particularly by the establishment of the Ephiralty. He diminished the power of the kings, but established on a more lasting basis the kingly office, which was thus made in a certain sense not less, but greater. There is a story that, when his wife once asked him, whether he was not ashamed to leave to his sons a royal power which was less than he had inherited from his father, no, indeed, he replied, for the power which I leave to them will be more lasting. As to two, tyrannies, they are preserved in two most opposite ways. One of them is the old traditional method in which most tyrants administer their government. Of such arts, Periander of Corinth is said to have been the great master, and many similar devices may be gathered from the Persians in the administration of their government. There are firstly the prescriptions mentioned some distance back, for the preservation of a tyranny in so far as this is possible, viz. that the tyrant should lop off those who are too high. He must put to death men of spirit. He must not allow common meals, clubs, education, and the like he must be upon his guard against anything which is likely to inspire either courage or confidence among his subjects. He must prohibit literary assemblies or other meetings for discussion, and he must take every means to prevent people from knowing one another, for acquaintance begets mutual confidence. Further, he must compel all persons staying in the city to appear in public and live at his gates. Then he will know what they are doing. If they are always kept under, they will learn to be humble. In short, he should practice these and the like Persian and barbaric arts, which all have the same object. A tyrant should also endeavor to know what each of his subjects says or does, and should employ spies, like the female detectives at Syracuse, and the eavesdroppers, whom Hiero was in the habit of sending to any place of resort or meeting. For the fear of informers prevents people from speaking their minds, and if they do, they are more easily found out. Another art of the tyrant is to sow quarrels among the citizens. Friends should be embroiled with friends, the people with the notables, and the rich with one another. Also, he should impoverish his subjects. He thus provides against the maintenance of a guard by the citizen, and the people, having to keep hard at work, are prevented from conspiring. The pyramids of Egypt afford an example of this policy also the offerings of the family of Sipsilis, and the building of the temple of Olympian Zeus by the Pazistratidae, 
and the great Polycratean monuments at Samus. All these works were alike intended to occupy the people and keep them poor. Another practice of tyrants is to multiply taxes, after the manner of Dionysius at Syracuse, who contrived that, within five years, his subjects should bring into treasury their whole property. The tyrant is also fond of making war, in order that his subjects may have something to do, and be always in want of a leader. And whereas the power of a king is preserved by his friends, the characteristic of a tyrant is to distrust his friends, because he knows that all men want to overthrow him, and they above all have the power. Again, the evil practices of the last and worst form of democracy are all found in tyrannies. Such is the power given to women in their families in the hope that they will inform against their husbands, and the license which is allowed to slaves in order that they may betray their masters. For slaves and women do not conspire against tyrants, and they are, of course, friendly to tyrannies and also to democracies, since under them they have a good time. For the people, too, would fain be a monarch, and therefore by them, as well as by the tyrant, the flatterer is held in honor. In democracies he is the demagogue, and the tyrant also has those who associate with him in a humble spirit, which is a work of flattery. Hence tyrants are always fond of bad men, because they love to be flattered, but no man who has the spirit of a free man in him will lower himself by flattery. Good men love others, or at any rate do not flatter them. Moreover, the bad are useful for bad purposes. Nail knocks out nail, as the proverb says. It is characteristic of a tyrant to dislike everyone who has dignity or independence. He wants to be alone in his glory. But anyone who claims a like dignity, or asserts his independence, encroaches upon his prerogative, and is hated by him as an enemy to his power. Another mark of a tyrant is that he likes foreigners better than citizens, and lives with them and invites them to his table. For the one are enemies, but the others enter into no rivalry with him. Such are the notes of the tyrant and the arts by which he preserves his power. There is no wickedness too great for him. All that we have said may be summed up under three heads, which answer to the three aims of the tyrant. These are, one, the humiliation of his subjects. He knows that a mean-spirited man will not conspire against anybody. Two, the creation of mistrust among them, for a tyrant is not overthrown until men begin to have confidence in one another. And this is the reason why tyrants are at war with the good. They are under the idea that their power is endangered by them, not only because they would not be ruled despotically, but also because they are loyal to one another and to other men, and do not inform against one another or against other men. 3. The tyrant desires that his subjects shall be incapable of action, for no one attempts what is impossible, and they will not attempt to overthrow a tyranny if they are powerless. Under these three heads, the whole policy of a tyrant may be summed up, and to one or other of them all his ideas may be referred. 1. He sows distrust among his subjects. 2. He takes away their power. 3. He humbles them. This, then, is one of the two methods by which tyrannies are preserved, and there is another which proceeds upon an almost opposite principle of action. The nature of this latter method may be gathered from a comparison of the causes which destroy kingdoms, 
for, as one mode of destroying kingly power is to make the office of king more tyrannical, so the salvation of a tyranny is to make it more like the rule of a king. But of one thing the tyrant must be careful. He must keep power enough to rule over his subjects, whether they like him or not. For if he once gives this up, he gives up his tyranny. But though power must be retained as the foundation, in all else the tyrant should act, or appear to act, in the character of a king. In the first place, he should pretend to care of the public revenues, and not waste money in making presents of a sort at which the common people get excited when they see their hard-won earnings snatched from them, and lavished on courtesans and strangers and artists. He should give an account of what he receives, and of what he spends, a practice which has been adopted by some tyrants, for then he will seem to be a steward of the public rather than a tyrant. Nor need he fear that, while he is lord of the city, he will ever be in want of money. Such a policy is, at all events, much more advantageous for the tyrant when he goes from home than to leave behind him a horde, for then the garrison who remain in the city will be less likely to attack his power and a tyrant, when he is absent from home, has more reason to fear the guardians of his treasure than the citizens, for the one accompany him, but the others remain behind. In the second place, he should be seen to collect taxes, and to require public services only for state purposes, and that he may form a fund in case of war, and generally he ought to make himself the guardian and treasurer of them, as if they belong not to him, but to the public. He should appear not harsh, but dignified, and when men meet him, they should look upon him with reverence, and not with fear. Yet it is hard for him to be respected, if he inspires no respect. And therefore, whatever virtues he may neglect, at least he should maintain the character of a great soldier, and produce the impression that he is one. Neither he nor any of his associates should ever be guilty of the least offense against modesty towards the young of either sex who are his subjects, and the women of his family should observe a like self-control towards other women. The insolence of women has ruined many tyrannies. In the indulgence of pleasures, he should be the opposite of our modern tyrants, who not only begin at dawn and pass whole days in sensuality, but want other men to see them, that they may admire their happy and blessed lot. In these things a tyrant should, if possible, be moderate, or at any rate should not parade his vices to the world. For a drunken and drowsy tyrant is soon despised in attack, not so he who is temperate and wide awake. His conduct should be the very reverse of nearly everything which has been said before about tyrants. He ought to adorn and improve his city, as though he were not a tyrant, but the guardian of the state. Also, he should appear to be particularly earnest in the service of the gods. For if men think that a ruler is religious, and has a reverence for the gods, they are less afraid of suffering injustice at his hands, and they are less disposed to conspire against him, because they believe him to have the very gods fighting on his side. At the same time, his religion must not be thought foolish, and he should honor men of merit, and make them think that they would not be held in more honor by the citizens if they had a free government. The honor he should distribute himself, but the punishment should be inflicted by officers and courts of law. It is a precaution which is taken by all monarchs not to make one person great, but if one, then two or more should be raised, that they may look sharply after one another. 
if, after all, someone has to be made great, he should not be a man of bold spirit, for such dispositions are ever most inclined to strike. And if anyone is to be deprived of his power, let it be diminished gradually, not taken from him all at once. The tyrant should abstain from all outrage, in particular from personal violence and from wanton conduct towards the young. He should be especially careful of his behavior to men who are lovers of honor, for, as the lovers of money are offended when their property is touched, so are the lovers of honor and the virtuous when their honor is affected. Therefore a tyrant ought either not to commit such acts at all, or he should be thought only to employ fatherly correction, and not to trample upon others. And his acquaintance with youth should be supposed to arise from affection, and not from the insolence of power. And, in general, he should compensate the appearance of dishonor by the increase of honor. Of those who attempt assassination, they are the most dangerous, and require to be most carefully watched, who do not care to survive if they effect their purpose. Therefore, special precautions should be taken about any who think that either they or those for whom they care have been insulted, for when men are led away by passion to assault others, they are regardless of themselves. As Heraclitus says, it is difficult to fight against anger, for a man will buy revenge with his soul. And whereas states consist of two classes, of poor men and of rich, the tyrant should lead both to imagine that they are preserved and prevented from harming one another by his rule, and whichever of the two is stronger, he should attach to his government. For, having this advantage, he has no need either to emancipate slaves or to disarm the citizens. Either party added to the force which he already has will make him stronger than his assailants. But enough of these details. What should be the general policy of the tyrant is obvious. He ought to show himself to his subjects in the light not of a tyrant, but of a steward and a king. He should not appropriate what is theirs, but should be their guardian. He should be moderate, not extravagant in his way of life. He should win the notables by companionship, and the multitude by flattery. For then his rule will of necessity be nobler and happier, because he will rule over better men whose spirits are not crushed, over men to whom he himself is not an object of hatred, and of whom he is not afraid. His power, too, will be more lasting. His disposition will be virtuous, or at least half-virtuous, and he will not be wicked, but half-wicked only. 12. Yet no forms of government are so short-lived as oligarchy and tyranny. The tyranny which lasted the longest was that of Orthagoras and his sons at Sicyon. This continued for a hundred years. The reason was that they treated their subjects with moderation, and to a great extent observed the laws and in various ways gained the favor of the people by the care which they took of them. Cleisthenes, in particular, was respected for his military ability. If report may be believed, he crowned the judge who decided against him in the games, and, as some say, the sitting statue in the Agora of Sicyon is the likeness of this person. A similar story is told of Pisistratus, who is said on one occasion to have allowed himself to be summoned and tried before the Areopagus. Next in duration to the tyranny of Orthagoras was that of the Sipsilidae at Corinth, which lasted seventy-three years and six months. Sipsilis reigned thirty years, Periander forty and a half, 
and Symmeticus, the son of Gorgas, three. Their continuance was due to similar causes. Sipsilus was a popular man, who, during the whole time of his rule, never had a bodyguard, and Periander, although he was a tyrant, was a great soldier. Third in duration was the rule of the Pisistratidae and Athens, but it was interrupted, for Pisistratus was twice driven out, so that during three and thirty years he reigned only seventeen, and his sons reigned eighteen altogether thirty-five years. Of other tyrannies, that of Hiero and Gelo at Syracuse was the most lasting. Even this, however, was short, not more than eighteen years in all, for Gelo continued tyrant for seven years, and died in the eighth. Hiero reigned for ten years, and Thrasybulus was driven out in the eleventh month. In fact, tyrannies generally have been of quite short duration. I have now gone through almost all the causes by which constitutional governments and monarchies are either destroyed or preserved. In the Republic of Plato, Socrates treats of revolutions, but not well, for he mentions no cause of change which peculiarly affects the first, or perfect state. He only says that the cause is that nothing is abiding, but all things change in a certain cycle, and that the origin of the change consists in those numbers of which four and three married with five furnish two harmonies. He means when the number of this figure becomes solid. He conceives that nature, at certain times, produces bad men, who will not submit to education, in which latter particular he may very likely be not far wrong, for there may well be some men who cannot be educated and made virtuous. But why is such a cause of change peculiar to his ideal state, and not rather common to all states, nay to everything which comes into being at all? And is it by the agency of time, which, as he declares, makes all things change, that things which did not begin together change together? For example, if something has come into being the day before the completion of the cycle, will it change with things that came into being before? Further, why should the perfect state change into the Spartan? For governments more often take an opposite form than one akin to them. The same remark is applicable to the other changes. He says that the Spartan constitution changes into an oligarchy, and this into a democracy, and this again into a tyranny and yet the contrary happens quite as often, for a democracy is even more likely to change into an oligarchy than into a monarchy. Further, he never says whether tyranny is or is not liable to revolutions, and if it is, what is the cause of them, or into what form it changes. And the reason is that he could not very well have told, for there is no rule. According to him, it should revert to the first and best, and then there would be a complete cycle. But, in point of fact, a tyranny often changes into a tyranny, as that at Sician changed from the tyranny of Myron into that of Cleisthenes, into oligarchy, as the tyranny of Antillion did at Chalcis, into democracy, as that of Gelo's family did at Syracuse, into aristocracy, as at Carthage, and the tyranny of Carleus at Lacedaemon. Often an oligarchy changes into a tyranny, like most of the ancient oligarchies in Sicily. For example, the oligarchy at Leontini changed into the tyranny of Panetius, that at Gila into the tyranny of Cleander, that at Regium into the tyranny of Anaxilaeus. The same thing has happened in many other states. And it is absurd to suppose 
that the state changes into an oligarchy merely because the ruling class are lovers and makers of money, and not because the very rich think it unfair that the very poor should have an equal share in the government with themselves. Moreover, in many oligarchies there are laws against making money in trade, but at Carthage, which is a democracy, there is no such prohibition, and yet to this day the Carthaginians have never had a revolution. It is absurd, too, for him to say that an oligarchy is two cities, one of the rich and the other of the poor. Is not this just as much the case in the Spartan constitution, or in any other, in which either all do not possess equal property, or all are not equally good men? Nobody need be poorer than he was before, and yet the oligarchy may change all the same into a democracy, if the poor form the majority, and a democracy may change into an oligarchy, if the wealthy class are stronger than the people, and the one are energetic, the other indifferent. Once more, although the causes of the change are very numerous, he mentions only one, which is that the citizens become poor through dissipation and debt, as though he thought that all, or the majority of them, were originally rich. This is not true, though it is true that when any of the leaders lose their property, they are ripe for revolution. But when anybody else, it is no great matter, and an oligarchy does not even then more often pass into a democracy than into any other form of government. Again, if men are deprived of the honors of state, and are wronged and insulted, they make revolutions, and change forms of government, even although they have not wasted their substance because they might do what they liked, of which extravagance he declares excessive freedom to be the cause. Finally, although there are many forms of oligarchies and democracies, Socrates speaks of their revolutions as though there were only one form of either of them. End of Book 5, Sections 11-12